This is the 0161 Podcast. Listen in to hear about news, politics, arts and culture, all in Manchester. Hello and welcome to News Club, a podcast by the 0161 NC Network. That's NC for News Club. This show is about building community power in Greater Manchester. And we do this by discussing the hot stories of the week and bringing it back to what we can do here to change things. Or we try to. We try our best. And some of the hot stories, they might not be the hot stories that usually come across your desk or on your Facebook feed or wherever you get you get your news. But we think they're important. And uh, this week we've got quite a selection. Um, today we We've got a full house. We've got Ben, a teacher from South Manchester. We've got uh, regulars, Renea. Uh, we've got producer Rory who's going to be chipping in. We've got James. We've got Danny. And we've got Rose coming in as well. So it's going to be absolutely cracking. We're covering, first and foremost, the teacher strike or where the school should be going back to uh, getting back open and what's going to be going on there. We're going to be talking about queer care and community organising. We're going to be talking about trillionaires and billionaires and diving on bullets for the economy. And we're going to be talking about hunger strikes. And then we're going to uh, finish up on Kerala um, and talking about what's going on there and what we can learn from um, an Indian state all the way around the world. So loads and loads of stuff to be getting on with. I'm going to read out a quick comment from one of our listeners about last week's show. I'm going to do it at the top of the show this time and from now on. And uh, then we're going to hear from Ben, who's a teacher from South Manchester, who's going to tell us a bit about what's going on around schools. Uh, So comment from last week's show, Tommy from Levensume writes in, loved your chat about the waste of cash uh, on HS2. I just wanted to add something. Who's going to be needing to get to London 20 minutes faster after this crisis anyways? We should be uh, working remotely more, not travelling to London, especially with the kind of work that needs to be done in London. And we need to be investing in local uh, transport infrastructure and regional transport transport infrastructure, not stuff that gets us to London quicker. so, Ben, say hello and introduce yourself to the listeners. And then I've got a couple of comments. OK, uh, hello, my name's Ben. Uh, I'm a geography and history teacher in South Manchester. Thanks for and having me on the show. That's what I was waiting for, that bit, that little bit of appreciation. Good man. Um, so I've got a couple of listeners' comments that I'm going to read out here just to guide the, the um, discussion. And then you're going to tell us about what's going on and what could go on and, and uh, what ideally should happen. So uh, I put out a question to 0161 listeners that said, what do you think about teachers striking? Eleanor said, I will stand by them 100%. My five-year-old is in a group that's being asked to return. The government states that uh children aged four five and six need to return first um but uh, as we know parents who have been asked back to work are unlikely to be allowed their phones at work so children could be in isolation all day it's just cruel and unnecessary for children and teachers to be separated like that uh, if a child displays viral symptoms teachers are told to isolate them in a room or on their own until the parent picks them up um that seems pretty rough uh peter Wicht, uh, peter said it's um uh, about the teacher strike it's their own and their families that they have to consider i'd support them fuck gove and the rest of the economy first brigade i notice they aren't opening eaton until at least september that says it all one rule for the rich and one for the rest of us um abla george says everyone should be striking yes i support them 100 and carmina says if the government cared about children as much as they claim they do they wouldn't have spent the last decade slashing education budgets as much as they have so that's a uh, teen you up there ben tell us what's going on and what could happen 
Uh, yeah, okay. Um, so last week, uh, the government made a series of announcements which came as no surprise to anyone in the education sector, and probably not much of a surprise to people following the news. Um, the government changed their slogan from stay at home to uh, the rather nebulous be alert, uh, essentially setting us all up to be blamed for when a second wave of infection happens across the country. Uh, one of the key mechanisms for them getting people back to work is to use teachers essentially as babysitters um, for the last six or seven weeks of the term. So plans are outlined to bring in um, reception children. So these are four years old, uh, year one children who are five years old, year six who are about 10, 11, making that transition to secondary school. And then in some form yet to be decided, um, year 10s and 12s back for some face-to-face -face time and the rest of primary school. So a big push to bring those children back. Um, why those children? They're not the ones facing exams. They're not the ones that could actually benefit from some um, time-limited tuition. The main aim is to free up parents as workers to get them back into the economy, get the economy moving again in some way. Um, the response from this, hopefully our listeners have seen this, uh, was a, a quite robust. So the main teachers union, um, well, the largest, I should say, the uh, National Education Union, which has a membership of 450,000 members, uh, teachers, uh, support staff and so on, um, came out first and was supported by all the unions, though um, it's been disappointing to see the head teachers union has, has kind of left our, our like position in the last few days. But up until then, they were with us. And we all argued that as School is not a safe environment. We can't socially distance children who are four years old. Uh, classrooms aren't big enough. Uh, the children aren't mature enough to deal with this. And it seems quite clear, even the Office for National Statistics is saying that children spread the virus as much as adults. Um, the NEU put forward five tests, which the government needs to meet before we would agree to go back. And these included uh, lower rates of infection than we have at the moment, um, appropriate PPE, and a, a functioning contact tracing and, and testing system, which we're nowhere near on any of these things. Um, yeah, so that's where we're at at the moment, really. Uh, all the unions, in, including NAS, UWT, and Unison as well, who do a lot of um, work with support staff, are all behind us. Um, and the other thing that kind of happened last week was there's a growing bunch of evidence suggesting that young people who we thought were thankfully um, clear of a lot of the effects of coronavirus are getting complications about a month down the line which looks similar to something called Kawasaki disease um, which is an inflammatory disease of, of uh, the circulation system I believe uh, unfortunately I, I think a young child in France died yesterday of it and in areas that are hot spots of corona across the world so um, Bergamo in Italy that region and New York I've seen a massive uh, spike 30 um 30 times the numbers of, of children's facing this. So it's not just unsafe for staff um, and parents, so adults, it's also un unsafe for children. Right, indeed. So if it is unsafe, what um, what can we do to support teachers um, and what are teachers considering doing? Okay, great question. Um, I mean, the good news, firstly, is that as a workforce education it is a highly unionized workforce like 90 percent of all staff are unionized um so the first thing you can do really to support us is to join your union because we're all stronger together um and we've had a massive um 
wave of support from parents, which is vital. We know from uh, teacher strikes in Chicago and so on in America that we don't win unless uh, parents are supporting us. So NEU's done some polling and um, only one third of, of the poorest families, uh, you know, so children who are most at risk and all the other setbacks that they face in life due to, to coming from uh, impoverished backgrounds, say they will send their children back to school. So, you know, the parents are with us. This is similar in Denmark where they've just opened up and there's a large campaign now, which is uh, under the slogan, uh, our children aren't guinea pigs. So I think parents are supporting us and will probably be taking action themselves if we do open by not bringing their children in. Um, I think just getting the word out, really. At the moment, the union isn't talking about strike action. Um, but what's been very, I think we don't have the time for that. There is um, legislation, Section 44 is health and safety kind of things. Um, but what's been very interesting is to see just who's come out in support. So the British Medical Association, uh, they've argued that until we've got case numbers much lower, we shouldn't consider reopening schools. We know parents are with us. Um, as the union continues to, to kind of fragment, uh, Scotland and Wales won't be opening. Um, they've just said that outright. And even local councils in England, so Liverpool and Hartlepool aren't implementing this. And our very own um, Mayor Andy Burnham is also making strong noises against forcing us to open. Right. So a very large coalition behind us. Do you, so do you think we can put pressure on Burnham? Um, is that the right person as well if, if for Greater Manchester? Or, or are, is the education separately done by the 10 authorities within Greater Manchester? Um, good question. Um, I, I mean, I think the first thing you can do if you're a parent, if you're lucky enough or unlucky enough, I don't know how you'd be feeling at this moment in lockdown. I'm really glad I'm not a parent. <laughs> um, you should be talking to your school, sending letters into the headmasters to let them know that, you know, you're, you're concerned. Most headmasters will probably be uh, agreeing with you to some level. And then, yeah, I think trying to get the message to Andy that we would like um, June 1st not to be the date to open would be a really good idea. Um, but yeah, it's been interesting watching the pressure pile up on the government at the moment. Right. Well, I'm going to bring in James here as well. We're going to keep these uh, discussions like this. James is going to be bouncing off uh, each one of these discussions here. Um, and so I'm, I'm going sure to ask everyone's you... delighted to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I know the audience are thrilled as fuck um, to hear that. What what we've he heard on some of the comments, like we've had a, a comment from. <laughs> Daniela, who said uh, she doesn't know any teachers who, who would consider striking and they just want to get back to work. I don't know where she's got that from. It seems anecdotal rather than any evidence. But do you, one, do you know any teachers that want to go back to work? And secondly, when there's other professions that are high risk and people are having to go back to work, what's the justification for teachers not going back to work? Okay. Um, so the first thing I'd say is... Uh, if I've not said already, I should be really clear. We are at work. We are working now. Uh, I am on a, a four-week rota. Some schools are on a one-week rota. We are in with children of key workers. So we free in key workers who need it so they can do the work that's needed to stop the infection. Um, and we also are looking after children of the most, vulner you know, the most vulnerable households. So we are already working. So the question is about do we open up to a wider group of children um, and I, th I think, you know, this argument about other people being forced to work, I think our union's idea and understanding is that it's not safe for many of us to be going to work at the moment, and it should only be key workers. Um, what's categorised as key workers is too broad. Um, 
and you know we, we shouldn't be going back so we're actually we're we're helping more by trying to keep schools closed until things are safe to stop a second wave of the virus coming you know the infection rate is dropping but it, it looks like it will rise if we go back to school um schools in france have also recently opened and they've had to shut 70 down in the last week because of, of infections you know so that's kind of some of the things i would say about that fair enough i mean you know but isn't it the case that I, I mean, the stories I hear anecdotally from a lot of my friends who are parents is that they, you know, they need a break. Like, is it, there's no way that logistically teachers should try and take this on in some way to give. I will have a fucking permanent break, won't if the kid dies. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the first thing, right? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, we've got a lot of sympathy for parents. You know, it's a very challenging time. Um, they're not trained it's their own children which makes it a lot harder in some ways I think I've got a lot of sympathy uh, especially in some of these households where there's lots of children there's not enough space to do this education this learning um but yeah it, I kind of I think James has said it quite bluntly like it's not safe to bring uh, students back at this point um that's what we'd say about that I think it's uh it's not safe it's not really it, what we should be doing it, um, it... and then there's also this thing around um there's a kind of culture war emerging around education i think the government are going after us first they'll go after others later try and get the economy working again um and there's been these two arguments haven't there one about heroes so the the daily mail we've let them be heroes as if you know we're all strapping into spitfires to go shoot down german bombers which is you know it's really not the case um we're not heroes we don't want to be heroes uh, this isn't a war. The metaphors around uh, conflict and war are really misleading, aren't they? Because it, it makes it sound like we're being killed by a wily enemy uh, who is like devious and trying to outthink us rather than negligence and uh, callousness and greed. Um, and I think the other argument which is being used by a lot of um, education ministers, Tory leaders, leaders of large academies, is all about um, a minority of unions. David Blunkett, David Blunkett accused the unions of working against the interests of children. Really, really strong stuff there. Um, as if we are deliberately trying to slow down the learning of young people. Um, so I think you read that. Guy dug off the lead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and other um, figures, you know, around the Labour Party have been quite disappointing to see this. Uh, David Blunkett accused the unions of working against the interests of children as if we're deliberately... Uh, and intentionally trying to stop children learning and as if that's our intention rather than um to be trying to keep everyone safe and you know it it's it's a bit rich tory leaders also coming out and saying this when they've been behind all of the policy programs that have um led to a third of children being in child poverty two-thirds of those having a parent who's in work it, it's poverty and social disadvantage which is actually slowing down uh educational results for young people which is making the education gap bigger not us asking for children to stay off school for another six weeks. Yeah, and this has got something to do with the Labour right as well, isn't it? Because they were the ones who introduced academies. Uh, like, they're the ones who are trying to be privatising the education system from within. And not only that, delivering worse results for people from disadvantaged backgrounds. In fact, across the board, academies are worse, right? Like, they're just educationally, they, they provide worse education. And so starting off that programme and still being proponents of it, I think it's Andrew Adonis and other members of the Labour right wing 
who've been out, you know, against the the teachers. Um, you know, are also the people who've pushed educational reforms that have held back the most disadvantaged and, in fact, the majority of children in this country from getting good education. So it's pretty rich. What do you think of uh, the Labour Party now under the leadership of Sir Starmer? It's a far-ranging far conversation at this point. Uh, yeah. I, am a Labour, I am a Labour Party member. Um, uh, I, you know, supported Corbyn. I'm not not been massively impressed with Starmer so far. Um, I guess we'll wait and see what happens with him. But yeah, I think the comments of, of parts of, of Labour hasn't been that impressive. I mean, Rebecca Long-Bailey's come out for us, which is good, but, you know, the likes of Adonis and so on, it's been really disappointing. James, do you have any um, questions or thoughts about this whole thing um, before we wrap up? Because um, it's it's quite an emotive issue for a lot of people and I'm sure we'd love your tact and subtlety to uh, really elucidate it for people. Um, I don't have any questions, you know what I mean? You covered pretty much everything, but like, I think teachers do should just do whatever the fuck they need to do. Like fuck what individual parents say. it's not about those individual parents i understand how difficult it must be if you're raising kids but it's not just about how difficult it is for you if your kids go out and then they get it and then you pass it on to another kid who's got a mom who's a fucking nurse or something like that and then the nurse goes into work that's what it is if you can't no matter how difficult you find no matter how stressful it is for parents you can't just think about well this is hard for me like it'll be a lot fucking harder if more people start dying simple as that so teachers should just tell your fucking head teachers to fuck off and just not go in. Like, these are fucking human beings. Like, don't let people, like, fucking just tell you you've got to go in and go in and, like, pretend, like, potentially threaten your own life. Fuck them. Like, just don't go in. Like, fuck them. Nah. Fair play. Well, that was a, that's a, a good succinct uh, summary there, I think, of, of most of our feelings um, on, on the podcast I, I, and most of the listeners' feelings as well, which is, you know, we, we shouldn't be putting ourselves as teachers or our society at risk and using kids as a, a you know, as a sort of political weapon here. Um, it does seem to be that teachers are the first to be attacked in this way during this crisis because of maybe the high levels of unionization and because as such they represent the most organized parts of the working class in in the uk um but also because it's an incredibly emotive issue that's quite easy to weaponize a bit like the doctor strikes a few years ago when you said like well how should they go on strike they're putting people in in danger it's like people are now saying well how dare the teachers consider not going back to work you know uh we pay their wages. We we need someone to look after the kids. It's not going to be that many kids. But I hope, listeners, that you've got a lot there from uh, Ben. I, I certainly did. I think it was really great. And Ben, before we go, have you got any final messages for the audience um, before we move on to the next? Uh, yeah, just just I'd like to clarify again that like, it's not that we're lazy. Teachers want to be back in the classroom. We want our kids back in the classroom, but only when it's safe. And I think, thankfully, most parents and most head teachers are agreeing with us at the moment. And I watch this space. The decision by the government is going to be on the 28th. Um, I expect them to back down quite significantly. Um, but yeah, keep supporting us. And uh, yeah. thanks for having me on the show. Nice one. Oh, thanks, Ben. It's been yeah, a good one, Ben. Lad. Yeah, it's wicked. Yeah. Up the teachers. 
get those letters into counsellors, Andy Burnham, and to head teachers, especially, especially if you're a parent, show uh, support for our teachers and for our society in general, because that's who they're trying to protect uh, and serve and look after and serve in a proper way. Um, uh, I've got a little message here from Joe161, which is to say, I'm going to be dropping these at the end of each segment. 0161 community still wants people to send in their messages of support for frontline workers to our Facebook page or to frontline at 0161community.com. Check that out and uh, we'll be moving on to the next bit. So in this next segment, we're talking about uh, the potential of a trillionaire. It was this week uh, announced that Jeff Bezos may become a trillionaire. Um, in fact, he looks like he will be the first trillionaire. And a lot of that is to do with the corona crisis itself boosting his wealth massively. Um, so we've got a listener comment again, Carmina in. I can't speak for anyone else, but it's not him as an individual that's the issue. It's the system that exists to create this false inequality that leads to very real and damaging consequences for the rest of us. His wealth isn't measured in tangible assets. It's sitting in a bank's cloud and it's subject to the astrological learnings of a finance system based on little more than the ravings uh, of some guy with a mood ring on. Uh, our financial system is built on debt and imagined value that we think of as supply and demand. When you step back and observe the whole thing and the stark inequalities that we've uh, collectively allowed to happen, it's just madness. People seem to be waking up to this, but I worry it's too late for us to do anything about it without force. Um, and I might agree with the latter uh, thing there. Certainly, we are going to have to get quite forceful to sort out these issues. But to tell us a little bit more about this, we're bringing in Renea. What's going on with the potential of the trillionaire and uh, how have people been reacting to this? Um, all right. So first, I wanted to talk about exactly how much a trillion is. So I think everyone knows that Jeff is the richest person in the world. Um, Forbes described him as being actually far richer than anyone else on the planet and the richest man in modern history. He currently has a personal fortune of 144 billion. He makes $2,500 a second. And so when I was just looking at ways to sort of make these figures something you can visualize, I found this one that said that if you if you earned $180,000 every single day since the birth of Jesus Christ, you still wouldn't be as rich as Jeff Bezos. Um, so, yeah, there's, so there was this study by a website called Comparison that said that he potentially might become the world's first trillionaire by 2026. Now, that will only happen, I suppose, if the growth continues at the same trajectory, which, if I'm, we're being realistic, is unlikely. But the fact that he could even get close to becoming a trillionaire is kind of insane. So I wanted to ask you guys, um, if you were to count uh, a second for every number, and I'll tell you that it takes you 11 days to count to a million, it takes 31 years to count to a billion, how long do you think it takes to count to a trillion? Um. James, you can come in on this, but I'm guessing like, I don't know, like 180 years or something like that. To be honest, she lost me at days and millions. Like, <laughs> so when it got to like the third layer, I was done for. So <laughs> I think like a billion takes uh, 30 years to count to if you counted one every second. 
So that's terrifying. That. Um, so a thousand billions. I think for thirty-one thousand years. I don't know. Fucking hell. Yes, he did maths. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Fucking killed it. Then. I did it. Well done. But I could not comprehend that anybody could have that much of anything. Like, what's the point in having that much money? You are way beyond a point. You're you're at a point with the billions where you can't spend it. You can't. All your ancestors can barely spend that amount of money. And just where's the morality in that? Like that there can't possibly be any morality in a system that allows that much wealth. And during this coronavirus pandemic, um, Amazon shares are at a record high. You know, his personal fortune's gone up by 20% as a result of coronavirus, whilst the rest of America, millions of Americans are facing unemployment. I suppose what I wanted to chat about with you guys is is the morality of that and I know a lot of people will say well it's his money he earned it you know he has a right to it and although he he might have a right to it he didn't earn it he didn't pack those boxes you know he has employees he doesn't pay those employees a living wage he doesn't treat those employees with any amount of dignity or or respect Um, so just kind of what kind of world do we live in where people (laughs) will genuinely for a second say well you know what he deserves it. It's his. I don't know about you, James, but I think people should get a fucking grip. I've been seeing a lot of this shit recently, and I've got some words to say about people who are try- out here trying to dive on bullets for the quote-unquote economy. Like, th- the economy is not some fucking thing that you're absent from, but you've got to do your best for it. We're not fighting, again, these war metaphors and bullshit. The only element of this thing, by the way, that's like a war is the fact that the rich seem to get to sit at home and watch it from behind their fucking screens while the rest of us have to fucking suffer the consequences to make their money. And that's what's occurring with this guy. He didn't pack his boxes. I worked for him. I helped make him money. I Like, I wasn't, you know, <laughs> I wasn't making How oh, you lost your hair when a barlow all that stress. <laughs> Don't be giving away the facade. Uh, to in, in listeners' ears, I look beautiful. I'm sure. Um, so I've got a full head of hair listeners and it's gorgeous and thick like George Clooney. He's got um, a little fucking island on the top. <laughs> shit. God damn you. That's some fucking cold shit right there. <laughs> fucking bastard. Um, no, I like, I, yeah, he didn't earn that money. We society created that wealth uh, every step of the way. First off, the people who work for him created that wealth. Um, we're talking everyone from the people who pack the boxes and deliver things to the people, by the way, who make the products that um, he sells that usually aren't Amazon products. And even when they are Amazon products, the people who design those things, the people who come up with creative concepts, the, the resources that have been used, the trees, the plastic, the oil, those are the things that are the wealth. Those And, and the people who got that, that wealth again, is not him. He is someone who has marshaled a lot of people, but again, was born into wealth. He didn't start off with nothing. Like all rich people, he inherited wealth. He inherited land. Um, And that it's gone up so extreme could be seen as skill or luck or any of those things, but it's not moral and it's not logically right when the people who've created that wealth and the planet that has created that wealth is not sharing equally in the dividends of that wealth, like 
there's just one guy who's got more money than he can spend, and he's probably going to do. Well, something. that's the biggest issue, isn't it? Yeah. Like, I think one of the reasons why people might be like, "Oh, what he's earned is his money," is because they they hope that you know they might be able to get to that stage at one point. And what we need to be doing is fucking telling them, it's like, you can have fucking everything. Like, we can have everything. Like, the reason why we can't have everything is because there's people like him who are taking trillions for themselves. Like, we can have everything. Amazon workers, if they owned Amazon, could have whatever the fuck they wanted. How profitable that business is. They could have whatever the fuck they want. We could have it all. Like, that is literally it. And the only reason why we can't is because of people like that taking it all. And I think one of the issues is that the, we, we don't say that enough to people. Like we don't argue that enough. It's like, yeah, but I want to, I want to succeed. I want to get a nice big house. Like, well, we can have that. There's nothing saying that we can't all have a nice big house and a nice fucking car and whatever the fuck the, like we want. There's nothing that's saying that we can't have that. And the only reason that we can't is because people like that, fucking Bezos, Lizard, is taking it all. So yeah. I think that is the, the one of the main points we need to get across. That I think that'll get people more, you know, as you know, maybe on our side is if we try and argue that actually we can have everything that is nice. And good in the world. Yeah, like, we can luxury for all. There's no doubt. There's no doubt that we can have luxury for all. And that luxury comes in many forms. It comes from working less as well. We could work less and have more, everyone on the planet. And do you know what? Like, this is an unpopular argument amongst the left, but it's true that um, the rich would be better off for it as well. The pressure that the elite class put on themselves causes higher rates of depression and suicide. It creates miserable uh, fucking inheritors of all this wealth who do nothing with it of any value. And I don't care about that. I hope the fucking suicidal. <laughs> I thought you might say that, which is why. Just I'm go going. ahead with it. <laughs> yeah. And they're well aware that that is the sentiment of society at large, you know. But hopefully, the difference between us here and Americans is that. Uh, the American working class do tend to see themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires, as the quote goes, which is maybe why Danny, who was talking about like the failings of the American class a couple of weeks ago, that could be linked back to it. Whereas in Britain, I think hopefully those social bonds of us working together and seen as, uh, as us all being in it together and having created that wealth together, we should share in the uh, spoils of that together. And uh, those, those shares should be coming down the pipeline soon, I think. Um, James, you're shaking your head at that. I just want to hear why <laughs> before I move on to another thing. I think you're very optimistic there. Like, yeah. I don't think the what, England or the UK, I don't think it's as different for America as your country. Why do you think that, that England doesn't have that same sentiment about, about the super rich? I, I think we do. I hope it's not as prevalent. I know that it wasn't as prevalent. And I, I, I think you can look to points of high class struggle uh, in Britain, i.e. the 70s and prior to that point and the high levels of unionisation and say that in our country, our working class was stronger, was better organised and won more things for us. So that we have yeah, 45 years ago, Barlow. Yes, I know. And that, and what I'm hoping is that if, uh, you know, as conservatives like to look back to the I mean, I was eight years before you were born. <laughs> so you've outed me as both fucking bald and old cheers <laughs> um yes it was a little while before i was born and i i got a lot more of those benefits than the younger ones of you did um but i still missed out on a bunch thanks to blair the fucking cockhole anyways um yeah I, i'm hoping that we we can 
retain some of those elements of working class pride and strength and organisation to claim what's ours. Though I am well aware, you're right, we should be cynical. It's not it's not going as well as we'd like, but we've got to make those arguments. But I don't think we're making those arguments, are we, though? I don't think the, the left has ever really dedicated time to telling everyone that we could fucking have everything. Like, yeah, I don't think it ever has. It's always been like sort of you can kind of have some things but they've always been like quite managed, you know what I mean? Like, it's never been like, well, you can fucking have everything you want, like, which is basically true. Yeah, and we've become a kind of conservative movement insofar as we're just trying to not let things get any more shit. Like, we're always like, oh, don't touch this, don't touch that. Not like, we should have it all. Everything that you can see is ours, and we created it together, and we all live on this fucking planet together and uh, we're all interlinked and the wealth has been created from the resources of the planet and our hard work and our parents hard work and our grandparents hard work and all of their hard work and their brains and their bodies and everything that they've given right and that's for all of us to share it's not for this dickhead to fucking sit on like a fucking smile what's he going to do is he going to be like elon musk and fucking pollute space with fucking you know satellites all over the place what's this you know probably what is- i mean i mean well, do what the fuck you want couldn't you a trillion dollars like he's gonna buy whales uh, yeah yeah it's gonna buy pluto or something actually Damn. fucking hell jeff bears off buying newcastle like if this society <laughs> thing doesn't go through get yourself over here lad we don't give a fuck come on <laughs> back to newcastle as ever danny what are you gonna say yeah i think there's there's a there's a fairly um there's a fairly appropriate um, example of, of how we can communicate this to people. There was a American trade union poster from like the thirties or something. And it was um, a picture of this rich bloke talking to all these poor blokes. Um, and he's saying, well, you get off my land. And they say, well, what makes this your land? He's like, well, I own it. And why do you own it? Is that like, oh, my father owned it before me? And why did he own it? And he fought for it. And they say, right, well, we'll fight you for it then. Yeah. I love that. That, that, yeah. that, is a it's just that if they did it in the 30s and we can do it now like that's oh, what that is power let's do it okay revved up so that's one of the action points that you can take away to do renee is there any final thoughts before i do a little tagline at the end here um yeah just that i think that people need to understand that when we're talking about the 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 wealthy we're not really talking about them i think people get very protective Mm -hmm. and they don't really see that when we're really not talking about even somebody who's you know kind of well off has got has got a nice big house we're talking about people who are disgustingly sickeningly rich beyond you know what could be spent and i did have a look for a moral billionaire um I, I still don't think you can have a moral billionaire, but I think there are better examples than than Jeff Bezos. For example, he's one of the few billionaires who hasn't signed up to that giving pledge. He um, He's just a bastard. But I saw this one, um, an American guy, he opened a yogurt factory and he makes the, the biggest selling Greek yogurt in the US. And he opened that factory in a place that a much larger company had shut down. He worked, he rehired all the old employees. He's, you know, reopened factories in places where they told him not to, they told him it wouldn't be profitable, trained people, made sure he employed refugees. Like there's a way to be a good, I don't know how to put it. There's a way to be good, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. We, they're not all the evil basis of the world and i don't think people should get maybe too protective over over those people 
in the way that I don't understand, but I see that they do. And I also wanted to say, are we willing to not buy from Amazon? Like, as consumers, are we willing to do that? Because I don't think I am. <laughs> no, uh, no, and I used to that work makes there. me feel shit. Yeah, I used to work there, and there used to be these big signs on the wall that say, uh, work hard, have fun, make history. So, yeah, I guess even if I've worked there, and seeing that I'm still buying from it. And I don't think we should blame ourselves from buying from a company that essentially has a monopoly on a huge amount of goods. We can't uh, sort of be judging each other on consumer habits, right? The way that we win is that we organize by coming together and taking power back off the elite, off the people who own our wealth, off the people who control our society. And we do that by coming together. We don't do it through our individual purchasing options because guess what? That's not where democracy lies. We don't earn enough to be able to make those choices. And it's the people who run society who keep it that way. There isn't such thing as ethical consumerism. It's bullshit. Denise, do you want that? Uh, we've got a, a, like a wholesale retailer who does like fruit and veg in Huddersfield. It's called, I think it's called Suma. And like everyone's on fifteen pound an hour, and like all the jobs rotate. So like for a few months you'll be like working in like the forklift and like in the fucking warehouse. Then you'll be doing something like an admin, and then you do something like a manager's role, and you do like some other sort of thing. And everyone just like rotates around and gets paid fifteen pound an hour, and they're grand. Like yeah. imagine if Amazon fucking just cut off Jeff Bezos' head, and then just took over Amazon. Like how much money they could all have between themselves. And all the things that they could then put in place to make conditions better and like the, the products that they make better. It's not like this utopian idea that like you, like workers can't run a business. Like they absolutely can. Like there's examples everywhere. And that's just what Amazon workers <clears throat> just need to really do in it. Like Yeah. But I suppose you need support from the state to be able to do shit like that, don't you? You can't just fucking unfortunately take Amazon off Jeff Bezos. Uh we'll we'll have to see. And there has been some good union organizing in the US around this, especially around workers' protection. So um, keep your eyes peeled on that and send support to Amazon workers here, there, and everywhere. Um, so at the end of this segment, I want to say uh, another message from Joe161, who's been leaving me loads of little messages to send out. Um, 0161 community uh, needs funds. If you do want to donate, please do so via PayPal at info at 0161community.com. All of these things will be in the description, by the way. And now we're moving on to talk about um, both queer care, community programs and hunger strikes. And we're going to be hearing from Rose and Rory about this uh, in the coming minutes. And also, we haven't managed to get in comments for every section. But if you follow the 0161 NC Facebook page, you can drop in comments on all the stories we're going to be talking about because we release them over the weekend uh, on the lead up to the recording of the podcast on Monday night. So please do check out 0161NC on Facebook. So uh, Rose is going to be telling us about queer care and community programs, and she's had a helping hand uh, a little bit from Joe 161, but also I know talking again passionately about something that's close to her heart, and uh, I hope it's as great as the, the former contributions. It's so great to have you back on. It's really great. I know you've been working late, but the audience will be really glad to hear from you as well. So you tell us, Rose, what's been going on and what should we be known about? Thank you. And it's a pleasure to be back and uh, yeah, be able to join in. So I wanted to talk a bit about some of the queer community organising that's been happening. So there's been and also it ties in quite nicely because yesterday was 
uh, a day called Ida Hobbit, which is the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia and Transphobia. Um, so, yeah, basically, there's this group called Queer House Party that are like a group of amazing lefty queer people who and most of them work for this uh, LGBT homeless charity called the Outside Project. So two things close to my heart, being queer and supporting homeless people. Um, and basically what they've done is they're doing this like virtual um, party every Friday night. So you sort of, you just log, log into the Zoom. They're also streaming the sound like separately for like a higher quality sound. Uh, but basically it's like bringing people together. It's a, an amazing like way to have like a space for queer people. Like I've really, really missed being able to like be around other queer people and like doing queer things is like really important to me so it helps me to feel like more connected to like my community um but also they've used that this as like a platform for campaigning for advocacy and for fundraising which is just amazing because they're reaching out to thousands of people every week they're just really using that platform in the best way so they've been um raising money for the outside project um and then also just like spreading the word on loads of different campaigns which i think is just a really good example of using an online platform in a really positive way uh, they're also like super inclusive so they have uh, like a sign language interpreter on there for like the whole show um, so whenever they're talking they have a sign language interpretation and they have loads of performers on as well so they're like supporting local artists and performers uh, like financially which i think is great um, but they're also like really sort of pushing people to join unions and like to unionize and get together and so yeah i just find it really um really inspiring and had a little quote from one of the um one of the producers called harry gay uh where he said um we've historically been excluded from spaces so we've always been great at creating our own looking for people and communities in which we can see ourselves um and he says our community is built out of necessity and i think that reflects quite a lot of different communities um so yeah i just wanted to share that but then also uh Joe 161 has sent me some stuff to share about what what 0161 have been doing, which is amazing. So um, we wrote a really great article called "The People Save the People." So there'll be a link out for that. So please check that out. It's it's talking about a lot of the work that we've been doing, sort of since the lockdown and 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 stuff. So just to share some of the kind of um, like the things that we've achieved. So we've hung over 20 large banners at strategic points. So outside hospitals, on main roads. I've seen loads when I'm driving to work and it just like gives me so much motivation to carry on doing what I'm doing. So I imagine it's having a great impact on other people as well. Um, we've been thanking key workers, calling for better pay and also better conditions on those messages. We've raised um, loads of money. So we've spent like two and a half grand uh, on like packages that we've delivered to key workers. So that's been things like just like nice treats and food for people in hospitals, for like at the bus depots, for, like loads of different places where, you know, people need that recognition and it's a it's a real great like morale boost. Uh, we've also rescued two and a half thousand airline meals that we redistributed to different food banks and different uh, projects. We also then picked up over 700 pizzas and then delivered them to a load of different places. So that was great as well. Um, and then we've also created some like entertainment packages for um, patients in hospitals because people can't have visitors at the moment. Things like that make a really big difference to someone's time when they're on their own and like they can't have their family with them. Uh, we've also done uh, some coloring books and some workouts and 
sports equipment for people that have been distributed across Manchester. So, and all of that's happened because of the money that that people have donated. So thank you for those donations and Mm. keep coming in with them because it's really making such a big difference to people. And it's also, it's great for us to be able to put our energy into something like that as well. And I personally am really proud of being a part of it and I'm sure everyone else is as well. I think we're doing a really great job at the moment. Yeah. I think it's great um, to to remember that that this podcast, you know, obviously we get to chat a, a lot about the news and it sounds, you know, sometimes a, a bit self-important or we're just pontificating on the world, but we're part of an organisation that does something to help people specifically and not just help people, but for to enable people to help each other, for, for us to come together and make a difference uh, and, and take back power and take back control by doing even these little things. It's part of a campaign. We know that some of these banners received um you know uh, national media attention we've had messages in from a lot of frontline workers who thanked us for them we know that bus workers who have been really highly hit by um by the virus and who have been still fighting over the desire to bring buses back into public control against the bus companies because that's not a done deal have really needed these moments, these things that remind them that the rest of the world cares about what they're doing. So I think that's an amazing thing. But I want to come back a little bit on the queer care stuff and um, just ask you a little bit, uh, you know, maybe for a couple more details, because I saw, oddly enough, a little post today from someone who said that a lot of people moan about LGBTQ sort of or queer events. Um because they feel like they're missing out on a great house party, you know, like that they've not been invited to. Because often, like, I think the energy and beauty and vibrancy of the queer community makes the things that they do seem so appealing. But it's, but as this person pointed out, that community has been built because we need a world, uh, we need a community that looks after us uh, at, uh, in a world that's still very dangerous and threatening to us at points, you know. And I think that's something that's worth remembering when when hearing these things that both being queer is both fabulous but also dangerous, you know, and and needs a great community and support as well. Yeah, and also like you know, it, even if you're not queer and you just want to have a bit of fun and, and watch it and join in, then you still can. Like, it's just a live stream. So if you want to feel that beautiful camp energy, then yeah. you, can, you can log into it and go on to it. And there's loads of virtual parties happening. But I think for me, especially because like, we're coming into summertime now, which is when Pride usually happens. So and for that, that can be such an important time of year for someone. That can be the time where they choose to come out. That might be the first time that they are openly out in front of other people. Um, and it's such a great like celebration and also like a time to remember sort of what we've been through and what we're still going through and how we can support people through like these difficult times um, and the sort of you know, the hate that people experience, basically, and the violence. Um, so I think people are trying to trying to figure out how to do like a virtual pride. Um, there was a little bit of um, difficulty with one that was trying to be organised where basically the kind of people did a bit of digging and found out that like one of the people organising it was like just the politics weren't aligned with with sort of what, maybe what people would like. I can't remember the exact details, um, but they also weren't really trying to make it that inclusive. So they weren't making it inc uh, inclusive to people with disabilities. Um, so that one's not happening, but I'm sure that others will pop up. And I just think it's great, like people coming together to kind of fill that gap. 
um, in a way that's like, and the thing that I like about queer house parties as well as having this, having like fun and a celebration and a bit of like a release, they're also using it to remind people about like the fight and what we're all trying to achieve and like how people can get involved to support other people. So I personally think that they're doing it in, in a really great way. And that's a lot about what like sort of queer organizing is all about. It's like, we're trying to make a difference, but we do it in a way that's fun, which is what I really like. I'm just going to see if James or Renea have any comments before we move on. No. No, not really. Just that it sounds great. And I think no, no. Uh, I don't want to, I hate the silver lining of this whole pandemic thing, but I do really like that so many people have come together to try and make differences in different places and try and make this easier for whatever different community. So, yeah, that's really nice to hear. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful thing uh, to take out of it. That I, I think um, when we go on Facebook and stuff like that, sometimes we feel like we can see humanity at its worst, but in our practical actions, we're often seeing humanity at its best as well. And I hope that is the side that wins out overall. So um, we're going to hear now from Ruri about hunger strikers and uh, why this anniversary is important, but also what's going on in the Basque country. Ruri, take it away. So um, uh, it's been 39 years since the death of 10 hunger strikers in Ireland. It was a hugely intense period of Irish history. Basically, the reason I wanted to explain it is just like not too many people sort of look too much into the context leading up to the hunger strikes. They sort of focus more on the hunger strikes and the impact that it had after. Getting the run update as well, sort of what's going on at the moment in the past country, which hunger strikes are going out there, um, and also coinciding with the anniversary of the hunger strikers in Ireland. I thought it would be a good opportunity just to, to go through what a virus was through. So if you didn't already know the choices made in 1976 through a new psychiatric status, which meant that all new prisoners who were being processed under this new system would be housed as criminals um, and made wear prison uniforms, do prison work, and they had their political status removed. So if you were sentenced up to midnight on the night prior, you'd still remain as a political prisoner. However, after you'd be tried as a common criminal. <clears throat> the new prisoners that were coming into the system were housed in the maze prison, otherwise known as the hate box. It was a state-of-the-art impenetrable facility that Fletcher said, so they said anyway. Many years after the hunger strikes, there was a, a huge break out there. With the introduction of the hate box, you saw the removal of the old long KI system. The long KI system was prison huts that was an old RAF base. Um, and these are like small town huts, like we army bases, if you ever see them. Um, and all the prisoners have political status. They were allowed to wear their own clothes. They were allowed to organize for the presidents. They were allowed to learn and educate themselves. Um, and many of the people who actually went on the long case actually said that they really enjoyed being in there at the time. They look back at someone who even say it's the best years of their life, which is kind of ironic given the situation. But I suppose if you look at it in the sense that it was almost like a university for some of them, like, they went on, they read Stalin, they went on, they read Mao, and they read about how, like, the Viet Cong with the Americans with guerrilla warfare, and they learned a lot from these tactics. So what you see then in the prisons was a lot of organising. So in many ways, then you'll hear a lot of people after say, like, they've graduated from the University of Long Kies. So <clears throat> following on from that, if you were to be housed now as a common criminal, the system had been changed. So there was going to be one prisoner that had been first processed, and that prisoner was Kieran Nugent. And he was the first person to be sentenced under the new regime on the 1st of March. Now, coming up to this, everybody knew his trial and sentencing was going to take place. So, outside of the prison, there was going to be a new policy implemented, like a, a protest. 
one of the infamous known after as a black protest. So the policy was that you weren't allowed to wear a prison uniform, and this came from the Army Council area at the time. So when they went into the May's prison, and upon receiving his prison uniform, Kieran Nugent amply said, the prison staff, the only way that he would be wearing his uniform is he would have to need it to be back. So after that, basically, Kieran Nugent laid naked on a cell for a few days before they gave him the blanket. Now, the blanket struck a great significance with the prisoners. Um, and it began in that period known as the blanket protest, where Republican prisoners now come on the prison, refused to wear their uh, prison uniform, and were only given that a blanket. And by July 1978, there was over 300 Republican prisoners on the blanket protest. Um, also, at the same time as this as well, you had the dirty protest, where prisoners were smeared basically their own excrement on cell walls. Um, and part of this was one to show, send a message that you couldn't be broken um, and you're inside, you couldn't be mentally broken and you were mentally strong and you were one and you prepared to do this. And on top of that as well, often that they would pour their urine buckets and stuff out onto the halls and madrooms um, and the screws would have to clean that up as well. Um, when it came to the summer, though, obviously the conditions aren't very nice. Um, the screws started cleaning cells left off them, so they would actually leave uh, Republican prisoners in their cells um, on dirty protests for weeks on end without intervening at all um, or trying to change anything and clean anything. And part of this as well, so the prisoners want to be re-established their political status and also part of which was part of the five demands that they put forward. So the five demands that they put forward was the right not to wear a prison uniform, the right not to do prison work, the right to free association with all our prisoners um, and to organise an A's occasional and recreational pursuits to be restored. Now this is something they would have had already previously in long case. Um, the fourth demand was the right to have one visit and one letter and one parcel per week. So also then move on to the fifth demand which is the full restoration or missing loss through the protest. After the five demands were set, this basically began the first set of hunger strikes. So at the time, seven volunteers would be selected. This was the symbolise the Easter Eyes and Signatories. And also, the sort of tactic of hunger strikes as well is a very special place in Republican history. It's a very emotive as well for Republicans throughout Ireland. The impact um, that could be achieved on world opinion was clear as well in 1920 when Harris McSweeney, who was the Lord Mayor of Cork at the time, died in Brixton Prison in London after 74 days of hunger strike. A passage from the speech that he made um, in the organisation as Lord Mayor was to be recalled during 1981 hunger strike. It is not those who can conflict the most, but those who can suffer the most who will conquer. To this day, that's that's something that still Republicans would say, and that's what Republicans would kind of hold dear to their heart, that this, this idea of being mentally strong, you can break everything else around you, but you can't break me as a person, you can't break my ideology. So, after the first sets of hunger strikes, one of the lads, a fellow called Sean McKenna, was in a coma, and he was days away from dying, and at the time, the British government gave him the sum of the demands, and it was enough to make the officer in command of the IRA and his president at the time, Brendan Hughes, to pull the seven hunger strikers off hunger strike because they thought the demands were going to be met um, after the British government had set down a further paced argument. Now this stopped on the 18th of December 1980. Ironically, just a few weeks before this, Thatcher already gave her crime is crime is crime is comment. But as time went on, it, it soon became clear that those demands were being met. For example, the prison was actually in civilian uniforms rather than given into the demand of the prisoners of being allowed to wear their own uniforms. So following this, it was a second hunger strike was to be announced, um, and that was announced in February, and it started on the 1st of March. Just like the previous hunger strike, there was floods of volunteers from both the INOA and the IRA at the time. They put their names forward for the second hunger strike. 
Bobby Sands, he was then, now the leader of the, the Maze prison, had refused for on the 1st of March 1981 began a new hunger strike. The choice of that date was pretty significant as well because it had marked the fifth anniversary as well of the end of special category status back in 1976. So the main aim of the new strike was the achievement of the reduction of political status for Republican prisoners. Following this, one volunteer would join over a period of like it was about two weeks. So they would join consecutively. Um, one would follow the other every two weeks, and all one would join the hunger strike. It later became clear to the leadership outside the prison um, wasn't massively in favour of the hunger strike. So they didn't really like it, but it was actually came down to the prisoners themselves. So ultimately, probably Bobby Sands, who took the ultimate stand over and said, We are going to hunger strike, defying what they received were saying on the outside. At the time, initially, I think the uh, Army Council were, were wary of how the public opinion was. The public opinion wasn't hugely at the time in favour of the first hunger strike. There was many sort of small pockets of Republicans that were in favour of it. But what you see now with the second hunger strike over a period of time, support grew massively, not just in Ireland, but around the world. There were thousands of people who were marching in support of the hunger strikers. We see then Sands being chosen as a candidate for the Fermanagh and South Toronto by-election for Westminster, um, and which Sands actually won with 30,000 fruits. Uh, there was two other hunger strikers as well, Ian Dordie, who actually then died on hunger strike. Um, Paddy Agnew were also elected for the general election in the South. And what you were seeing here is a mandate of the people basically trying to stop the hunger strike from the outside. Now, you did have the Irish government were against the hunger strike. You had TDs coming up the visit hunger strikers. You had the Pope sending letters. Um, you also have people like Jeremy Corbyn and uh, Bernie Sanders had sent letters to Margaret Fisher saying that it was inhumane the treatment of the hunger strikers and it was inhumane that she wasn't given demands. During all this here, the, basically the, the British government refused ever to give them to the demands. They acknowledged with the officials, they had even went as far as not even meeting the Irish TDs um, that came to meet the hunger strikers when they came to the Lancaster prison, or sorry, the Maze prison. Um, Unfortunately, a period of time had passed since the government never gave on the old demands of the hunger strikers. And on the 5th of May, the Member of Parliament for Fermanagh and South Room, Bobby Sands, had died after 66 days on hunger strike. Francis Hughes, then, had died after 5 and 9 days on hunger strike. Raymond McCreese, died after 61 days on hunger strike. Patsy O'Hara, died after 61 days on hunger strike. Joe McDonald, died after 61 days on hunger strike. Martin Herson, died after 46 days on hunger strike. Kevin Lynch died after 71 days on hunger strike. Kieran Dorty, PD, died after 73 days on hunger strike. Thomas McElwee died after 62 days on hunger strike. And Michael Devine died after 60 days from hunger strike. The hunger strikes officially ended then on the 3rd of October 1981. Unfortunately, now in this day and age, unfortunately, across the world, we still see political prisoners being harassed and abused in prisons. Because of their political beliefs. One person in particular I want to mention is a fellow called Patsy Ruiz. He's a basketball prisoner and he's now begun hunger break in a prison um, after suffering harassment by the hands of the prison officers. Patsy um, had a wound that required treatment such that they had to be transferred to the hospital in the prison. Basically, what happened then, found that they didn't have appropriate care um, in terms of the assessment of pay management, and then he was refused as well when he wanted to get pay management. Patsy was being treated for wounds with no privacy and prison officers repeatedly demanded that he shout out his prison number. Because of the treatment of Patsy Ruiz, um, all our Basque prisoners in solidarity have also 
joined on the hunger strike as well. Um, and just to kind of like a bit of the 1981 hunger strikes, they also have five demands themselves. And I think it's, it's down to us as well it's, uh, that we should read them out. So the five demands are as follows. They want freedom um, of the sick prisoners and for those who have almost completed your sentences. They also want to be able to make visits. The third demand is they want to receive material they avoid being affected, such so as like PP, like masks and gloves. The fourth demand is they want to be carrying out COVID-19 tests on prisoners and jailers. And then the fifth demand as well is uh, in the event of a death of a family member, possibility of going to a funeral or a funeral home as well. Um, and it's sad to see, and Republican prisoners in Ireland are still going through this harassment as well. You see that uh, prisoners are being refused to prison visits, families are turning up to prisons to be harassed by sectarian schools, and then to be told that their uh, visit has been cancelled. We also see them not getting any more made as well. We see them refusing to let Republican prisoners out to the, uh, the funeral of a family member when one of them's died. I just want to finish off and say, like, just like the 1981 hunger strikers, the vast prisoners um, are not alone in their struggle, and we wish for freedom for all prisoners, uh, both Republican and vast prisoners, and solidarity with each other. Um, hopefully, you know, the demands are met. Um, I just wanted to shine a bit of light on that and give a bit of context as well for the 1981 hunger strikers, because I think they're two very important issues that are really linked to textually, especially at this time. And if you want to find out more about what's happening in the Basque country and the anniversary, then please do uh, check out the description or we'll be posting it on the 0161 NC Facebook page. Thanks very much, Rory. Now we're moving on to talking about Kerala and what we can learn from uh, their response to the COVID crisis over there and the unique things about their government more generally. And this came from... Uh, brought to our attention by a Guardian article of all things, praising the uh, communist government of uh, Kerala. Um, but Danny, you've got way more details on this and I can't wait to hear them. What's been going on over there? Yeah, so basically they've had, the, they've, they've had a really unique kind of um, response to the virus. Uh, the, the article itself was um, about obviously their response to the virus and their health minister in particular uh, and the way that they've dealt with it. So like despite having a population of 35 million, which is half the population of the UK, they've got 524 cases as of um, that article's publishing, which was last week, and four deaths. Now, obviously, we've got double the people. Um, so you would expect us to have eight deaths or thereabouts. Um, and we've got 40,000. So um, they're obviously doing something right that we're not doing. Uh, just for a bit of context about Kerala itself, its infrastructure is like the highest, like the highest point of development in India. Uh, it's at the forefront of things like gay rights in India. Uh, it's Human Development Index, which is a combination of statistics used to measure quality of life, is 0.7, which is considered high. Like if you were to ask the people who put these statistics together, that would consider a high score, which is the first high score in India. Uh, for reference, the UK is 0.9. Um, it's a fucking it, joke. Yeah, well, yeah. And it's also regarded as the cleanest and healthiest state in India. So this is relevant because it points to why the area has responded to COVID-19 so well. Since 1957, uh, a year after the state's formation, Kerala has been a communist stronghold in India. Uh, it's currently controlled by the Communist Party of India, uh, and its health minister um, is a lifelong member of the Communist Party, as are most uh, of its government officials, and, and indeed hundreds of thousands uh, of its uh, citizens. 
you'd struggle to find a state that does more for its people, uh, both in, in India and elsewhere. Uh, and that's true both um, in terms of things related to the virus and, and before it. Uh, in relation to the virus specifically, anyone and everyone entering the state is being tested before they're allowed into it. Ooh, anyone, tell me more, Danny. Anyone showing any symptom at all and anyone who those people have, are known to have been in contact with is quarantined. Um, Kerala also entered a lockdown on its own initiative two days before the rest of India. At the peak of the virus, 170,000 people were actively quarantined. So bear in mind, 400 odd cases, 170,000 people quarantined. Uh, and the, all those people quarantined were placed under regular surveillance by health workers. So like, like not quite face-to-face, obviously, for um, distancing reasons, but, but at, at point of service um, observation by health workers. At the same time, the state housed and fully supported 150,000 people, most of whom were refugee workers from other Indian states, the food and necessities for free for six weeks. Mm. So whilst they couldn't travel because of the lockdown. Uh, this attitude of responsibility is typical of, of the government, um, the communist government in Kerala. Every village has a medical centre. There is a decentralised public healthcare system that has essentially unlimited funding and local autonomy down to the community and village level. So they, they decide how their healthcare works for them. Uh, and they're given a blank check by the state. And then, and, and usually, like, if, can you imagine if the NHS was given a blank check by a, a, a left-wing government? What would our press say? Our press would say, you can't throw money at it. It turns out you fucking can, and it works. And so the bionic result, legs. Yeah, yeah. As a result, previous viruses that have left India, otherwise ravaged, have left Kerala relatively untouched. A similar approach to education has meant that Kerala has had the highest literacy rates in India, and there are 10 medical colleges in Kerala alone. Mm. Land reform imposed by the party has also meant that much of the rampant poverty in Indian rural life doesn't occur in Kerala because large mm. families and businesses aren't allowed to own a disproportionate amount of land. All yeah, this nice. has, has lowered the, the um, poverty level and increased people's quality of life. And, and, and weirdly, it's, it's allowed them to do something that we would consider negative in our country, which is trust their government. When... Like, when places of worship were locked down in India, all over the country, because of the um, of the lockdown, there were protests and there were riots and there were sectarian clashes all over the country. And there were none in Kerala, where the Communist Party, uh, as part of the government, has liaised with faith, uh, faith leaders to facilitate worship from home. And, it, and it's gone off without a hitch. Uh, the lesson to take away from this, in my opinion, is that it's, a, and it's, it's not just in Kerala either, it's a pattern around the world which is that in areas where the working class are in control, the virus has been fought much more effectively and people have been much happier to comply with things like lockdowns because they feel that they as a class are in control of their own communities. You can see this in Cuba, in Vietnam, in Venezuela, and, and here in Kerala, and even in China, where you know you could contest the idea that it was actually working class control. Some say it is, some say it isn't. But there's been none of the, the mass unrest and people are working together, not in spite of their governments like we do here, but with their governments. I think it just comes down to the fact that communists and socialists, like in, in areas where they have power, obviously just care about people. Like you, you can argue about the ideology and, and the politics and the academics of it all day long. But at the end of the day, capitalism, as we've seen um, with uh, the teacher thing today, is about getting people into work. It's about using the working class as a meat shield for our economy. 
the, the communists and socialists in Kerala are, are taking um, conference centers and hotels off uh, of private businesses and saying we, we need these to facilitate what they think is going to be a a rush of people when the lockdown lifts because of their living um, standards. I think more people are going to come there. So instead of closing their borders like a capitalist country would, what they're doing is they're taking the property of the rich to make sure that they can care for those people when they decide to come there. Oh, yes. Like, it, it, yeah, if you're going to take I'm a lesson... Whispering these sweet nothings to me, Danny. <laughs> if you're going to take a lesson away from, from Kerala and, and the example they're setting, it's that cap capitalism doesn't care and socialists do. Well, um, uh, let me put a few arguments maybe that the capitalists would make. You know, the market globally has delivered right like overall people more people are out of poverty than they were you know 60 70 years ago uh you know that that um that though and because of that the world's a, a better place because of it and, and that's because of free market capitalism and that more importantly that like i don't know that Social governments may care more, but they make bad decisions. You know, what would you say to those critiques or criticisms? I would say that that since the industrial revolution, um, the gap between rich and poor has never been as big as it is now. So, is it working? And and even if it is, has it made the world better? I mean, even if on paper it's made the world fairer, which by the way it hasn't, but let's just hypothetically pretend that it has. If it if it had. Is the world a better place? Is is rampant pollution and, and a massive class divide and a renewal of Cold War aggression towards the East? Uh, is, that, is that good? And yeah. also them giving us things for their own benefit is a lot different from the socialists giving the Kerrallan people things just for the benefit of them having healthcare. Capitalists don't give us things for our benefit. They give yeah. us things to keep alive longer, to work more. They give us education. To, so we can do these sorts of jobs. Nothing they give us is because they think we fucking deserve anything. Everything they give us is so that we can work for them longer. If you compare the health system of, of Britain, if you compare the NHS, for example, to the health system of, of Kerala, the NHS is constant. Don't get me wrong, I love the NHS. It's fantastic. And it's it's one of the the, the best things about our country. But if you it's constantly under attack from, from let's be honest, Labour and the Conservative Party. It's constantly under attack and it has very little mechanism to defend itself because it's not created by the working class. It was given to us to try and essentially pay us off because the, the ruling class at the time were concerned about the influence of, of you know, the reds under the bed. Hmm. If, if you compare that to Kerala, where the health system is not only successful, but it's, it's, it's working class owned. And it's working class owned because the working class feel that, that, that they are part of the government. Yeah, it's an interesting point. And also, I think it's worth pointing out that things like healthcare and education, concessions that have been won by the working class from the elite in this country, have also seen, been seen by the elite as great because we need a slightly more educated workforce. We need a healthy workforce and I don't have to pay for it because guess what? I'm putting my fucking money in the Cayman Islands and I don't give a fuck about you people. Like, especially in the era of globalization, what we've seen is not only has there been an increase in inequality, but it, it, uh, an increase in the dereliction of, of the elite 
of having any feelings towards uh, their the population which they come from you know uh, Renee was talking about earlier good billionaires and stuff like that not only are they rarer than the the Cadburys and so forth that were sort of seen as these nice industrialists but um they're rarer for a reason because they're part of this global hyperclass. And also, I think, as Malcolm Gladwell pointed out in the, uh, I can't fucking remember the name of the book, but he pointed out that inequality is worse than poverty, than absolute poverty. Inequality creates way worse uh, outcomes in health, education, mental health, rates of suicide, violence, uh, and, and sense of self as a, a human being. So we've created a society that is more unequal under free market capitalism. And, you know, one where as you say, uh, resources are put in the hands of the people for the people, and the government is seen as a partner in that, surely has to be a step forward and something that even the fucking Guardian can see as a better way forward. Well, yeah, that's the other thing, that the Guardian's a fucking nasty rag. Yes. And and and, and shied and away from like fucking hurt them. The, the allegiance of this state. As much as it could, it did. It, did, it mentioned the Communist Party of India once. After seventy-five percent of the article, yeah, yeah. And, and 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 then bear in mind, this isn't like some sort of new government that they're hoping will blow over. This is the, the the Communist Party of India has been a, has been a key part of Kerala's government and Kerala's people. It is a huge political organization. It's been a key part of, of, of that state for for over half a century since nineteen fifty-seven. Like, since nineteen fifty-seven. Nineteen fifty-seven. I'm just uh, trying to think, like, if even the Guardian has to admit it. Are you trying to think how close I was? Just what anarchism's done in that time. I'm just, I'm just trying to. Yeah. Uh, was trying was to think. Um, <laughs> scabies, may, maybe. Uh, what were you two when this yeah. happened? What, what's that? Sorry, was I two when this happened? Motherfuckers! Jesus Christ! We got almost all the way through to the end without you knobheads going <laughs> fucking peace, didn't we? I was asking a genuine question. What what has anarchism done? Um, yeah. Um, so, listeners, I just want to thank you very, very much for listening in and joining us today. Um, it's been a real pleasure. We're going to hopefully continue in this sort of vein with having lots of little uh, segments with James chipping in more. I know you love him. And um, we will be putting stuff out on our Instagram, 0161NC, on Facebook, 0161NC, and on the 0161 app, which is just 0161. Check those things out. Uh, thank you again for listening, and we'll catch you next week. This is the 0161 Podcast. Listen in to hear about news, politics, arts, and culture, all in Manchester.